0: Section Seven of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One: War, Part Seven. There is no problem in history so interesting as the unparalleled development of Greece. How was it that so small a country could exert so remarkable an influence on the course of events and on the intellectual progress of mankind? The Greeks. As the science of language clearly proves, belonged to the same race as the Persians themselves. Many centuries before history begins a people migrated from the highlands of Central Asia and overspread Europe on the one side, on the other side Hindustan. Celts and Germans, Russians and Poles, Romans and Greeks, Persians and Hindus, all sprang from the loins of a shepherd tribe inhabiting the tableland of the sources of the Oxus and Jaxartes, and are quite distinct from the Assyrians, the Arabs, and Phoenicians, whose ancestors descended into the plains of Western Asia from the tableland of the sources of the Tigris and Euphrates. It is also inferred from the evidence of language that at some remote period the Egyptians belonged to the same stock as the mountaineers of Armenia the Chinese to the same stock as the Highlanders of Central Asia, and that, at a period still more remote, the Turanian, or Chinese Tatar, the Aryan, or Indo-European, and the Semitic races and languages were one. Upon this last point, philologists are not agreed, though the balance of authority is in favour of the view expressed. But as regards the descent of the English and Hindus from the same tribe of Asiatic mountaineers, That is now as much a fact of history as the common descent of the English and the Normans from the same race of pirates on the Baltic shores. The Celts migrated first into Europe. They were followed by the Greco-Italian people and then by the German Slavonians, the Persians and Hindus remaining longest in their primeval homes. The great difference between the various breeds of the Indo-European race is partly due to their intermixture with the natives of the countries which they colonised and conquered. In India, the Aryans found a black race which yet exists in the hills and jungles of that country, and who yet speak languages of their own which have nothing in common with the noble Sanskrit. Europe was inhabited by a people of Tartar origin who still exist as the Basques of the Pyrenees and as the Finns and Laps of Scandinavia. It is probable that these people also were intruders of comparatively recent date, and that a yet more primeval race existed on the gloomy banks of the Danube and the Rhine, in huts built on stakes in the shallow waters of the Swiss lakes, and in the mountain caverns of France and Spain. The Aryans, who migrated into India, certainly intermarried with the blacks, and there can be no reasonable doubt the Celts, who first migrated into Europe, took the wives as well as the lands of the natives. The Aborigines were therefore largely absorbed by the Celts, to the detriment of that race, before the arrival of the Germans, whose blood remained comparatively pure. We may freely use the doctrine of intermarriage to explain the difference in colour between the sepoy and his officer. We may apply it, though with less confidence, explain the difference in character and aspect between the Irish and the English, but we do not think that the doctrine will help us much towards expounding the genius of Greece. And if the superiority of that people was not dependent in any way on race distinction, inherent or acquired, it must have been in some way connected with locality and other incidents of life a glance at the map is sufficient to explain how it was that greece became civilized before the other european lands it is nearest to those countries in which civilization first arose it is the borderland of east and west the western coast of asia and the eastern coast of greece lie side by side the sea between them is narrow with the islands like stepping stones across a brook on the other hand a mountain wall extends in the form of an arc From the Adriatic to the Black Sea, and shuts off Europe from Greece, which is thus compelled to grow towards Asia as a tree grows towards the light. Its coasts are indented in a peculiar manner by the sea. Deep bays and snug coves, forming hospitable ports, abound. The character of the Aegean is mild and humane. Its atmosphere is clear and favourable for those who navigate by the eye from island to island, And from point to point. The purple shellfish, so much in request with the Phoenicians for their manufactures, was found upon the coasts of Greece. A trade was opened up between the two lands, and with trade there came arithmetic and letters to assist the trade, and from these a desire on the part of the Greeks for more luxury and more knowledge. All this was natural enough. But how was it that whatever came into the hands of the Greeks was used merely as raw material, that whatever they touched was transmuted into gold? How was it that Asia was only their dame's school, and that they discovered the higher branches of knowledge for themselves? How was it that they, who were taught by the Babylonians to divide the day into twelve hours, afterwards exalted astronomy to the rank of an exact science? how was it that they who received from egypt the canon of proportions and the first ideas of the portraiture of the human form afterwards soared into the regions of the ideal and created in marble a beauty more exquisite than can be found on earth a vision as it were of some unknown yet not unimagined world the mountains of greece are disposed in a peculiar manner so as to enclose extensive tracts of land which assume the appearance of large basins or circular hollows, level as the ocean, and consisting of rich alluvial soil through which rise steep, insulated rocks. The plains subsisted a numerous population. The rock became the acropolis or citadel of the chief town, and the mountains were barriers against invasion. Other districts were parceled out by water in the same manner, Their frontiers were swift-streaming rivers or estuaries of the sea. Each of these cantons became an independent city-state, and the natives of each canton became warmly attached to their fatherland. Nature had given them ramparts which they knew how to use. They defended with obstinacy the river and the pass. If those were forced, the citadel became a place of refuge and resistance, and if the worst came to the worst, They could escape to inaccessible mountain caves. Each of these states possessed a constitution of its own, and each was home-made, and differed slightly from the rest. It may be imagined what a variety of ideas must have arisen in the process of their manufacture. The laws were debated in a general assembly of the citizens. Each community within itself was full of intellectual activity. Self-development and independence are too often accompanied by isolation, and nations, like individuals, become torpid when they retire from the world. But this was not the case with Greece. Though its people were divided into separate states, they all spoke the same language and worshipped the same gods, and there existed certain institutions which, at appointed times, assembled them together as a nation greece is a country which possesses the most extraordinary climate in the world within two degrees of latitude it ranges from the beach to the palm in the morning the traveler may be shivering in a snowstorm and viewing a winter landscape of naked trees in the afternoon he may be sweltering beneath a tropical sun with oleanders blooming around him and oranges shining in the green foliage like balls of gold from this variety of climate resulted a variety of produce which stimulated the natives to barter and exchange. A central spot was chosen as the marketplace, and it was made, for the common protection, a sanctuary of Apollo. The people, when they met for the purposes of trade, performed at the same time religious rites, and also amused themselves, in the rude manner of the age, with boxing, wrestling, running races, and throwing the spear or they listened to the minstrels who sang the ballads of ancient times, and to the prophets, or inspired politicians, who chanted predictions in hexameters. That sanctuary became, in time, the famous oracle of Delphi, and those sports expanded into the Olympian Games. To the great fair came Greeks from all parts of the land, and when chariot races were introduced, it became necessary to make good roads from state to state, and to build bridges across the streams. The administration of the sanctuary, the laws and regulations of the games, and the management of the public fund subscribed for the expenses of the fair could only be arranged by means of a national council composed of deputies from all the states. This congress was called the Amphitionic League, which, soon extending its powers, enacted national laws and, as the Supreme Court of Arbitration, decided all questions that arose between State and State. At Olympia, the inhabitants of the coast displayed the scarlet cloth and the rich trinkets which they had obtained from Phoenician ships. At Olympia, those who had been kidnapped into slavery, and had afterwards been ransomed by their friends at home, related to an eager crowd the wonders which they had seen in the enchanted regions of the East. And then, throughout all Greece, there was an inward stirring and a hankering after the unknown, and a desire to achieve great deeds. It began with the expedition of Jason, an exploring voyage to the Black Sea. It culminated in the siege of Troy. In such countries as the Grecian states, where the area is small, the community flourishing, and the frontier inexorably defined, the law of population operates with unusual force, The mountain walls of the Greek cantons, like the deserts which surrounded Egypt, not only kept out the enemy, but also kept in the natives. They were not only fortresses, but prisons. In order to exist, the Greeks were obliged to cultivate every inch of soil. But when this had been done, the population still continued to increase, and now the land could no longer be increased. In those early days, they had no manufactures, mines, or foreign commerce by means of which they could supply themselves, as we do, with food from other lands. In such an emergency the government, if it acts at all, has only two methods to pursue. It must either strangle or bleed the population. It must encourage infanticide or emigration. The first method was practised to some extent, but happily the last was now within their power. The Trojan War had made them acquainted with the Asiatic coast, and overcrowded states began to send forth colonies by public act. The emigrants consisted chiefly, as may be supposed, of the poor, the dangerous, and the discontented classes. They took with them no women. They went forth like the buccaneers, sword in hand. They swooped down on the Ionian coast. There was at that time no power in Asia Minor which was able to resist them. They obtained wives, sometimes by force, sometimes by peaceable arrangement with the natives. In course of time the coast of Asia Minor was lined with rich and flourishing towns. The mother country continued to pour forth colonies, and colonies also founded colonies. The Greeks sailed and settled in every direction. They braved the dark mists, and the inclement seasons of the Black Sea, and took up their abode among a people whose faces were almost concealed in furs, who dwelt at the mouths of great rivers, and cultivated boundless plains of wheat. This wheat the Greeks exported to the mother country, with barrels of the salted tunny fish, and the gold of Ural, and even the rich products of the oriental trade which were brought across Asia from India or China, by the waters of the Oxus to the Aral Sea, From the Ural to the Caspian Sea by land, from the Caspian to the Black Sea by the Volga and the Don. But where Italy dipped her arched and lovely foot in the blue waters of an untroubled sea, beneath the blue roof of an unclouded sky, where the flowers never perished, where eternal summer smiled, where mere existence was voluptuous, and life itself a sensual joy, there the Greek cities clustered richly together cities shining with marble, and built in fairy forms, before them the deep, tranquil harbour, behind them violet valleys, myrtle groves, and green lakes of waving corn. When a bank of emigrants went forth, they took with them fire kindled on the city hearth. Although each colony was independent, it regarded with reverence the Mother State, and all considered themselves with pride, not foreigners, but Greeks. For Greece was not a country but a people. Wherever the Greek language was spoken, that was Greece. They all spoke the same grand and harmonious language, although the dialects might differ. They had the same Bible, for Homer was in all their hearts, and the memory of their youthful glory was associated in their minds with the union of Greek warriors beneath the walls of Troy. The chief colonial states were represented at the meetings of the Amphictyonic League, and any Greek From the crimea to Marseilles, might contend at the olympian games with the full rights of a spartan or athenian a privilege which the great king could by no means have obtained the intense enthusiasm which was excited by the olympian games was the chief cause of the remarkable development of greece the man who won the olive garland on that celebrated course was famous for ever afterwards his statue was erected in the public hall at delphi He was received by his native city with all the honours of a formal triumph. He was not allowed to enter by the gates. A part of the city wall was beaten down. The city itself became, during five years, the talk of Greece, and wherever its people travelled, they were welcomed with congratulations and esteem. The passion for praise is innate in the human mind. It is only natural that throughout the whole Greek world a spirit of eager rivalry and emulation should prevail. In every city was established a gymnasium where crowds of young men exercised themselves naked. This institution was originally intended for those only who were in training for the Olympian Games, but afterwards it became a part of daily life and the Greeks went to the gymnasium with the same regularity as the Romans went to the bath. At first the national prizes were only for athletes, but at a later period the principle of competition was extended to books and musical competitions, paintings and statues. There was also a competition in rich and elegant display. The carriages and retinues which were exhibited upon the course excited a desire to obtain wealth and gave a useful impulse to foreign commerce, manufactures and mining operations. The Greek world was composed of municipal aristocracies, societies of gentlemen living in towns, with their farms in the neighbourhood, and having all their work done for them by slaves. They themselves had nothing to do but to cultivate their bodies by exercise in the gymnasium, and their minds by conversation in the marketplace. They lived out of doors while their wives remained shut up at home. In Greece, A lady could only enter society by adopting a mode of life which, in England, usually facilitates her exit. The Greeks spent little money on their wives, their houses, or their food. The rich men were expected to give dramatic entertainments, and to contribute a company or a man-of-war for the protection of the city. The marketplace was the Greek club. There, the merchants talked their business. The labours of the desk were then unknown. The philosopher instructed his pupils under the shade of a plane-tree, or strolling up and down a garden path. Mingling with the song of the cicada from the boughs, might be heard the chipping of the chisel from the workshop of the sculptor, and the laughter and shouts from the gymnasium. And sometimes the tinkle of a harp would be heard, a crowd would be collected, and a rhapsodist would recite a scene from the Iliad, every word of which his audience knew by heart as an audience at Naples or Milan knows every bar of the opera which is about to be performed. Sometimes a citizen would announce that his guest, who had just arrived from the Sea of Azov or the Pillars of Hercules, would read a paper on the manners and customs of the barbarians. It was in the city that the book was first read, and the statue exhibited, the rehearsal and the private view. It was in Olympia that they were published to the nation. When the public murmured in delight, around a picture of zeuxis or a statue of Praxiteles, when they thundered in applause to an ode by Pindar, or a lecture by Herodotus, how many hundreds of young men must have gone home with burning brows and throbbing hearts, devoured by the love of fame. And when we consider that though the geographical Greece is a small country, the true Greece, that is to say, the land inhabited by the Greeks, was in reality a large country, When we consider with what an immense number of ideas they must have been brought in contact on the shores of the black sea in asia minor in southern italy in southern france in egypt and in northern africa when we consider that owing to those noble conquests of olympia city was ever contending against city and within the city man against man there is surely no longer anything mysterious in the exceptional development of that people Education in Greece was not a monopoly, it was the precious privilege of all the free. The business of religion was divided among three classes. The priests were merely the sacrificers and guardians of the sanctuary. They were elected, like the mayors of our towns, by their fellow citizens for a limited time only, and without their being withdrawn from the business of ordinary life. The poets revealed the nature and portrayed the character and related the biography of the gods. The philosophers undertook the education of the young and were also the teachers and preachers of morality. If a man wished to obtain the favour of the gods, or to take divine advice, he went to a priest. If he desired to turn his mind to another, though scarcely a better world, he took up his Homer or his Hesiod. And if he suffered from sickness or mental affliction, he sent for a philosopher. It will presently be shown that the philosophers invaded the territory of the poets. Who were defended by the government and by the mob, and that a religious persecution was the result. But the fine arts were free, and the custom which came into vogue of erecting statues to the gods, to the victors of the games, and to other illustrious men, favoured the progress of sculpture, which was also aided by the manners of the land. The gymnasium was a school of art. The eyes of the sculptor revelled on the naked form, not purchased, as in London, at eighteen pence an hour but visible in marvellous perfection at all times and in every pose thus ever present to the eye of the artist it was ever present to his brain and flowed forth from his fingers in lovely forms as art was fed by nature so nature was fed by art the greek women placed statues of apollo or narcissus in their bedrooms that they might bear children as beautiful as those on whom they gazed such children they prayed the gods to give them, for the Greeks loved beauty to distraction and regarded ugliness as sin. They had exhibitions of beauty at which prizes were given by celebrated artists who were appointed to the judgment seat. There were towns in which the most beautiful men were elected to the priesthood. There were connoisseurs who formed companies of soldiers composed exclusively of comely young men and who could plead for the life of a beautiful youth amidst the wrath and confusion of the battlefield. The Persian Wars gave a mighty impulse to the intellect of Greece. Indeed, before that period, Greek art had been uncouth. It was then that the age of marble really began, and that Phidias moulded the ideas of Homer into noble forms. It was then that Athens, having commanded the Greeks in the war of independence, retained the supremacy and became the centre of the nation. Athens had died for Greece. It had been burned by the Persians to the ground, and from those glorious ashes arose the Athens of history, the city of the violet crown. To Athens were summoned the great artists. To Athens came every young man who had talent and ambition. To Athens every Greek who could afford it sent his sons to school. The academy was planted with wide-ranging plane trees and olive groves laid out in walks with fountains, and surrounded by a wall. A theatre was built entirely of masts which had been taken from the enemy. A splendid harbour was constructed, a harbour which was in itself a town. All that fancy could create, all that money could command, was lavished upon the city and its environs. The very milestones on the roads were works of art. End of section 7.